Hello, I'm Amelia Allen, and a very happy new year to all of my Altitude Crime listeners. Can you believe we've hit another year already? I hope you all are staying happy and healthy. I know it's cold and flu season and COVID-19 is going around again. I apologize because I'm kind of stuffy, so I apologize if you have to listen to that through this whole episode. But I hope you guys are going into the new year with a new lease on life and that things are always looking up for you. You guys have done nothing but support me and I hope you are getting the same in your life. So before we start today's episode, I do have a bit of housekeeping and some updates on what's going on with Altitude Crime into the new year. Let's do a quick recap of 2021. So we ended out the year with 12,900 downloads and listens between our podcast platforms and YouTube. Altitude Crime now has listeners in every state in the United States and in 33 countries. I could have never imagined that this podcast about Colorado crime would reach so far. Thank you so much, guys, because that is all because of you. As you do know, the sale on Altitude Crime merch is over, but there is still a chance to get 20% off merchandise. I do have a suggest a case link on altitudecrime.com, and if you suggest a unique case, I will get you 20% off of merch. Or if it's really unique, you might even get something for free. Now, when I say unique crime, don't message me and be like, dude, John Benet Ramsey. I want to hear something that maybe I'm not familiar with, or maybe something you're just more familiar with than I am. Something big that is coming in 2022 is Altitude Crime will be opening a Patreon account. I most likely will not be doing this until we hit about our year mark, which will be in April. It will include a additional full-length episode for every month. If you do go to Patreon now, you'll probably see Altitude Crime on there, but don't purchase a subscription yet because like I said, I probably won't be starting that until April. So if you purchase now, it'll just be a donation, which would be greatly appreciated, but you won't get any additional content until I actually roll that out. So don't get too excited and hop on over there and sign up and then wonder why you're not getting any additional content. Like I said, donations are greatly appreciated for the next couple of months, but I will make an announcement on both the episodes and on social media and the website once that is up and running. Okay guys, that's enough chit chat. Let's get into today's episode. So today's episode is actually a collection of three different cases, which are short by themselves, but as you know, not any less important. And I want to make sure to still be telling these stories. So you may see more of these episodes in the future where it's a collection of quite a few cases so that I'm giving you guys some longer content, but still telling these stories. To make this a little easier, I will put a little quick snippet of music in between each case to break them up, and I will do the musings for each at the end of each one, just so it's not too confusing to keep them straight at the end of the episode. So, without further ado, let's get into today's cases. The case that kicks off today's episode was actually a recommendation from one of our listeners, which was put in via the suggested case link on altitudecrime.com. Alison Cantrell was 33 years old and had last been seen on March 13, 2021 at 5.52 p.m. 
Her last sighting was at the 7-Eleven on 21st Street and Highway 24, and she had been recorded on the 7-Eleven surveillance video. The following day, on Sunday, her best friend, Leah Larson, had tried to reach out to Allison all day and got no response. Allison's body would then be found on Monday, when a call came in to 911 on March 15th at 1.35 p.m. Allison's body was found just south of Fountain at Midway Ranch Road on the 1600 block, which is about Midway Ranch Road and Old Pueblo Road. This is very close to Pikes Peak International Raceway. Her body was located in a field. There would have been no reason for Allison to be near the Pikes Peak International Raceway. She had no plans. There was really no reason for her to be there. And this was clearly an effort on someone's part to hide her body. The police immediately deemed the case a homicide. While they began their investigation, Allison's funeral was held in Colorado Springs on March 20th, 2021. Allison Cantrell was born on April 19, 1987 in Ventura County, California, and was one of five children. Allison had two sisters and two brothers. She went on to graduate from Adolfo Camarillo High School in 2006. While living in California, Allison helped form the Ventura County Derby Darlins in 2007 and skated under the name Allie Crash. She was a bright, sunny person and was quick to make friends. She worked out often and liked to kickbox and was also a fan of shooting guns. She was your typical punk rock kid turned responsible adult. Allison helped raise her younger brother prior to becoming a mom herself and at the time of her death had a seven-year-old daughter named Lily. Allison was a dedicated and active mother. Lily's father was still in the picture and was Allison's common-law husband, Joey Sullivan. In 2017, the couple decided to move with their daughter to Colorado to get away from the rising housing prices in California. Allison worked at a few restaurants and bars in Colorado Springs once she moved to town. Her last position held was at Mother Muffs in Old Colorado City. Also around 2017, Allison's father died, and her 17-year-old brother actually moved to Colorado to live with her family. While friends of Allison said that she was a very kind person, they also said that she was not naive and would have not put herself in a dangerous situation. While the investigation into Allison's death continued, the Derby Darlins held a memorial skate on April 24th, 2021 in Allison's honor and in an effort to raise funds for the family. Just a few days later, on April 29th, 2021, a suspect would be arrested in Allison's murder. This suspect was Joseph Honeycutt, who was 40 at the time and was always the prime suspect. Now, you may be wondering in this story, we already had another Joey that was Joey Sullivan, that was Allison's common-law husband, and you might be thinking, there's two Joeys in this case now? Well, actually, there's not. Joseph Hunnicutt was Allison's significant other, but Allison's friends and family knew him as Joey Sullivan. He also had an additional alias that he went by, which was Justin Bailey. Hunnicutt had been trying to relocate to Texas with their daughter, Lily, and it was the Grayson County Sheriff's Office that had found him, and they held him in McKinney, Texas, under the charge of first-degree murder. Once he was arrested, a relative picked up Lily from Texas. Colorado records show that he was charged under the name Justin Randall Bailey. Investigators believe that Allison was killed on March 13, 2021, the day that she went missing. On May 3, 2021, Allison's autopsy was released to the public. 
She had injuries consistent with blunt force trauma, but her cause of death was listed as strangulation. While the call for information has kind of stopped, I would assume that the Colorado Springs Sheriff would still appreciate any additional information about this case. If you know anything at all, please contact their tip line at 719-520-6666. So a quick musing about this case. I wonder with Honeycutt having these different aliases, if people like Allison's friends, Leah, or anybody else ever thought he was a suspect. It's not mentioned in any articles that they were suspicious of him early on, but I would be curious to see if they ever had any bad feelings about him. I will keep you up to date as this case is ongoing. I haven't seen any further articles about when a court case or anything may happen, so as I have updates, I will keep you posted. On October 25th, 1986, 55-year-old Barbara Freischlag attended a party at the El Paso Club in Colorado Springs. After enjoying the party, she left alone and went to her home in Upper Skyway, which is in the Broadmoor area, to her house at 2222 Constellation Drive. The following day, on Sunday, October 26, 1986, her husband found her when he returned home from a business trip. Barbara was in the kitchen and had been shot. It was discovered that the weapon was of large caliber and she was shot at a close range four times. The home showed no signs of forced entry or signs of robbery and nothing at all was missing from the home. Barbara had also not been sexually assaulted. During the investigation, Barbara's friends said that it would have not been normal for her to leave her doors unlocked. And that led investigators to believe that her killer was either someone she knew or someone who had a key. Needless to say, her death was immediately ruled a homicide. Barbara had been born on November 17, 1930, and at the time of her death had three grown children. For a time, she had owned the Broadmoor Ski Shop and was a well-known socialite in Colorado Springs. Barbara's husband, Kedrick Griffith, who went by K.G., was the president of the Colorado Springs Chamber of Commerce at the time. He was integral in helping getting the Air Force Academy placed in Colorado Springs, and at the time of Barbara's death was working to expand the United States Olympic Committee's presence in the city. KG was a suspect in the case, but he did have an alibi as he was in Reno the night that Barbara was killed, and that was a confirmed alibi. But to this day, police still suspect that he hired a hitman to kill his wife. According to Matt Steiner's reporting for the Gazette about the case, in the 911 call when KG called to say that his wife had been killed, he said, quote, I just got in. I guess I have a dead wife in my house, unquote. KG never spoke about her death again other than to call 911 when he found her body. The two detectives on the case were originally planning to talk with him the following day after her body had been found and they started the physical investigation, but he did not talk to them that following day and had never cooperated with the investigation. He was friends with police chief at the time, James Munger, and Munger had ordered that KG not be brought into the police department for questioning. Munger was the police chief from 1985 to 1990 and then went on to become the deputy city manager. 
Munger felt that he did not interfere with the investigation, but it does look like he socialized with KG often, and this could have been a conflict that just ended in a bad decision for the investigation. I don't necessarily think that the police chief was really holding something back or really trying to interfere. I think he was just trying to do good by his friend, and it ended up being a bad decision. KG ended up luring up, and that was the final nail in the coffin for investigators to get any information from him about this case. Detective Dave Spencer worked the case again in 1988 with FBI agents. The odd thing that he found when going through the case, when KG arrived home, he did not take his luggage out of the car to take into the house. Detectives assumed it was because he already knew Barbara was dead and he knew he would not be spending the night there. This task force did have some progress, but not enough evidence to ever make an arrest. KG ended up passing away on March 4, 2011, and took whatever he knew about Barbara's killing to the grave. Tips have been received over the years, but have not found Barbara's killer or enough evidence to clearly say that KG was responsible for planning her killing. If you have any information on this case, no matter how small, Please call either the Colorado Springs Police Department at 719-444-7000 or Crime Stoppers at 719-634-STOP, which is 7867. So a couple musings on this case. Musing number one. So the quote that we have from the 911 call is definitely not what you would expect of someone finding a loved one murdered in their home, let alone their significant other. And you guys know that I have some sticking feelings on this. Yes, you can't predict how someone's going to react when something like this happens. But unfortunately, we do have a lot of record of when something like this happens and somebody acts like this, that they are guilty. So it is kind of a sticking point and it is something to think about. Musing number two. And this actually has to do with both Barbara's case and Allison's case. And it's the cases that scare me the most. It's these people that you think you know. You hear these stories about people that have been married for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and they just want out. So instead of divorcing the person or leaving or whatever, they kill them. I understand when it's somebody who's a complete stranger, but when you think you know that person, when you think you love that person and you know that person to their deepest core, these are the cases that terrify me the most. Now we're going to wrap up our episode with an unsolved holiday story. 44-year-old Polly Sullivan loved Christmas. She was the first to decorate and the first to go out Christmas shopping. On Christmas Day 1998, Polly went to her parents' home and then back to her housing complex, which was called Crooked Tree. Crooked Tree was a transitional housing for the homeless that Polly worked at, and she returned to the complex to fix a holiday dinner for a number of the residents living there. Her parents tried to call her the day after Christmas, but did not receive an answer. They would find out later that day that Polly had been killed. Polly's body was found inside her apartment at 448 Golfers Way. She had been beaten and stabbed to death and had 14 stab wounds. It was also clear that in the midst of the attack, Polly had been trying to reach the phone. Her death was ruled a homicide. Polly Elizabeth Sullivan was born in Oklahoma on November 7, 1954. She was half Irish and half Native American, Creek to be specific. 
Her dad was a state highway department engineer and her mom was a stay-at-home mom. When Polly was around one year old, the family moved to Denver, Colorado. The move was actually facilitated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs Relocation Program. Polly graduated from Hinckley High School and went to Colorado State University and the University of Colorado, where she got a bachelor's degree in English. She also worked to get her paralegal certificate. In 1994, she graduated with a Juris Doctor degree from the Arizona State University and then went on to pass the bar in Arizona. This is when she took her job with nonprofit Denver Indian Center Development and created Crooked Tree. This housing was located on the former Lowry Air Force Base land, and an old military dorm left behind by those operations became the resident homes for Crooked Tree. Polly served as the project director at the home. Additionally, she also worked to provide legal services to the poor via the American Indian Law Clinic at CU Boulder. Polly was also a very big fan of collecting lighthouses. She did not have to live at Crooked Tree due to her job, but she chose to do so. And she took great care of her tenants. She helped her residents with bus tokens and boxes of food when grocery money was short. She was of small stature, only 4 foot 10, but that didn't mean that she didn't have rules. This caused her to have some conflicts with some of her tenants. After her death, A man named Willie Safford was initially charged. He was a 48-year-old ex-con who lived on the first floor of Crooked Tree. He was facing eviction due to late rent and conflicts with other tenants, and his rap sheet included both assault and robbery. Safford denied being involved, and investigators did not have enough evidence to take him to trial, so the warrant was revoked. But Safford would be arrested again in 1999 and put in jail for an unrelated charge. Polly's parents, Lawrence and Shirley, took to the streets in 1999 to hand out flyers in undesirable areas of Denver. They handed out 200 flyers in the first few months. After 23 years of trying to learn more about Polly's murder, her family still has no answers. In 2000, According to Sean Kelly's reporting for the Denver Post Extras, the family had hired a plane to fly near the state capitol with a banner that read, quote, two years, no justice for Polly, unquote. The banner was both to promote Polly's case, but also to promote a program that puts unsolved cases on billboards. They hoped to grab the attention of the governor at the time, Bill Owens. In 2012, Denver detectives met with Viadoc to discuss this case. This group is made up of criminologists who help weigh in on unsolved cases and basically try to see if there's gaps or places that maybe investigators haven't thought to look into or different avenues or different questioning, things like that. Polly's sister, Linda Gruno, had written in with a six-page letter that prompted their involvement in her case, but it doesn't seem to have gleaned any new answers. In the time since her passing, a memorial tree and plaque was placed at Arizona State University Law School in Polly's honor. Polly Sullivan's case is still considered active. If you have any information, no matter how small, please call the Denver Police Department at 720-913-2000 or the Crime Stoppers tip line at 720-913-STOP, which is 7867. If you call Crime Stoppers, you can remain anonymous, and last I knew, there was still a $2,000 reward for any information. And I do have one musing about this case that's interesting. 
I've talked about this in many of our episodes, that the death penalty in Colorado was repealed in 2020 by Governor Jared Polis. On January 27th of that year, families of murder victims had gathered at a press conference in an effort to end the death penalty. The letter this group created was signed by 55 Coloradans whose families had been affected by violent crime, and this included Polly's nephew, Sean Gruno. Okay, everybody, I know I threw a lot of information there at you, and we have not done an episode before with three cases, so I hope that wasn't confusing, but if you're like, Amelia, this was just way too much information, please let me know. I like getting your guys' feedback on episodes so I can make sure that I'm making stuff as clear and concise as possible. If you have feedback on these episodes, please reach out to me on social media at Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And there's also a link for a contact form on the website at AltitudeCrime.com. As always, if you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen on. This will help you get midweek notifications as we continue to have some updates on some of the different cases I've covered so far. And it helps other people find the podcast and keeps our listenership growing. As always, you can find source materials for this episode at AltitudeCrime.com. As I mentioned earlier, if you go on and suggest a unique crime, you will get 20% off any Altitude Crime merchandise. And remember, you may see Altitude Crime on Patreon, but that's not new content yet. Feel free to make a donation by subscribing now, but you won't be getting additional content until April. And above all, thank you so much for all of my listeners' time. You guys, I would have not expected that Altitude Crime would already be here in the eight months that we've been doing the podcast. And I'm so excited that you guys are interested and you're coming back every week. And I just feel so grateful and thankful. And I'm excited for what 2022 has to come for Altitude Crime. Stay happy and healthy, and I'll talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 39, The Murders of Allison Cantrell, Barbara Freischlag, and Polly Sullivan, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.